Hi, I'm Beth, and I'll be reading you today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, December 18th. Well, let's start with weather and lottery. You know it's happening today, Monday. It's a big storm going on. Heavy winds, heavy rain continue throughout the day, ending late this afternoon. The only plus is that the high is going to be 58 degrees. Tonight, the temp drops down to around 43. It's still breezy, but not as windy. Tomorrow, high of 48, still cloudy and still breezy with a couple of showers lingering. Wednesday's a pretty nice day, high of 41, partly to mostly, mostly sunny, and Thursday the same, mostly sunny, little breezy again, high of 43. Taking a look at some lottery numbers from this weekend. On Sunday, December 17th, the midday numbers game drawing, 6711. Last night's evening drawing, 93. Four, two. And mass cash from Sunday, 2-7-15-25-32. And Saturday's Powerball number, 3-9-10-20-62, Powerball 25. First front page story headline, We are hoping to fight on a higher level. Aubrey Wilsey of Mashpee is relieved that his son, Jaden Wilsey, 13, was released from a month-long stay at a Boston hospital on November 17th, but Jaden's sickle cell anemia symptoms have persisted. He hasn't had a pain-free day in a long time, said Wilsey. Mashpee Middle High School officials have put together a plan where Jaden will attend school for half the day, five days a week. In October, Aubrey Wilsey received a letter from the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office requiring him to attend an October 27th hearing about his son's school absences. School officials knew prior to the hearing about Jaden's diagnosis of sickle cell beta thalassemia, a rare form of the disease, Wilsey said. Following the hearing, Wilsey and his family weren't penalized for Jaden's absences. We're hoping to get him back soon, said Wilsey. Jacqueline Haley, executive director for the Mass Sickle Cell Association, said she's heard stories like Wilsey's over and over again. Caregivers and those suffering from sickle cell disease face racial disparities within public health care systems, schools, and in the workplace, she said. Black people are less likely to receive outreach, education, and most importantly, routine preventive care, she said. Sickle cell disease is a group of inherited red blood cell disorders. Signs of the disease can appear during the first year of life, usually around five months, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Symptoms and complications are different for each person and can range from mild to severe. Normal daily activities such as climbing stairs, running laps in elementary school gym classes, or roughhousing with friends can trigger a pain crisis because the sickled red blood cells can't carry oxygen efficiently. Let's just call it what it is. It's a black disease. It's never been a priority, said Haley during a phone call with the Times Thursday. For Haley, sickle cell disease is a public health crisis, which is why the association partnered with state legislators like Representative Bud Williams, a Democrat from Springfield, Senator Liz Miranda, a Democrat from Boston, and Representative David Rogers, a Democrat from Belmont, to support an act to improve sickle cell care, 
which was heard in the General Court of Massachusetts Joint Committee on Financial Services. We are hoping to fight on a higher level to decrease disparities and address standardized care for those with sickle cell disease, said Haley. Sickle cell disease, said Williams, impacts one in 12 people of African descent and is one of the most underfunded and overrepresented disorders in the nation, said Williams on the phone Wednesday. Over 100 people testified at the November 14th Joint Committee hearing for the bill. The show of support and testimony made Williams emotional, he said. For two hours, patients, doctors, lawyers, and healthcare specialists shared their related struggles surrounding sickle cell disease. We file 8,000 bills a year, but the committee was moved by the testimony given for this bill, said Williams, who was also chair of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Legislative Caucus. The joint committee will try to pass the bill in 2024. U.S. Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, reintroduced the bipartisan, bicameral Sickle Cell Disease Comprehensive Care Act in March. The federal legislation would direct the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to create a Medicare, Medicaid demonstration program to improve access to comprehensive, high-quality outpatient care, including clinical and support services for individuals with sickle cell disease. Education is one of the most important aspects of the bill, said Williams. From schools to hospital ERs, people who suffer from sickle cell disease are often misunderstood. And that's because there are no public health initiatives surrounding Sickle Hill, said Haley, of the State Association. In hospitals, said Haley, providers have a lack of knowledge about sickle cell disease. Because of that, we have families in hospital emergency rooms who are being labeled as drug seekers, she said. The bill, said Williams, has the capacity to raise public awareness surrounding sickle cell. Education, he said, can improve standards of care across the state. If passed, the state bill would establish a sickle cell steering committee within the State Department of Public Health. The steering committee will make recommendations that can create better outreach and education. The group would also be charged with establishing partnerships with hospitals, colleges, and universities and developing sickle cell educational material for the public and for healthcare providers. This legislation is crucial in ensuring that our Commonwealth continues to be an unprecedented leader in advancing healthcare, well-being, racial equity, and inclusion for all, said Williams. One of the biggest hurdles when supporting sickle cell patients is keeping track of who is suffering from the disease. The bill would also help establish a sickle cell disease registry and create better methods to coordinate patients' transition from pediatric to adult care. The steering committee will also investigate and report on standards of care for patients and enhance, enhance access to patient services. The lack of organization and the absence of standards of care for state sickle cell patients is frustrating, said Williams. 25 years ago, Williams said sickle cell disease was talked about more often and was a chief concern within black communities. All of a sudden, there was radio silence on it, he said. Sickle cell disease has been around for hundreds of years, said Haley, but there has never been public health initiatives surrounding the disease. You see billboards for diseases like diabetes and cystic fibrosis all over the place, she said, but not for sickle cell. 
with additional factors like language barriers and limited access to health care, programs, and services, families have become tired of advocating for themselves, said Haley. They feel beaten down. They feel like no one is listening to them, she said, and it's exhausting. In recent years, Haley said the association has begun to encourage families to speak out about their struggles with sickle cell. When patients vocalize their difficulties, there is more interest in helping with the bill's initiatives. It's an uphill battle, but we're still fighting together, she said. There will be change. At the very least, Williams hopes the legislature will get over the finish line in 2024. By passing the bill, the legislature would be sending a clear signal to the black community that pushing the needle forward against the debilitating disease is a priority. For patients living through sickle cell, every day is a bad day. The pain is 24-7. It doesn't go away, he said. We want to make their days a little brighter. This headline, Yarmouth intends to clean up Lewis Bay, Parker River, Parker's River in new notices. The town of Yarmouth has filed a notice of intent for watershed permits for the Parker's River and Lewis Bay watersheds, marking the first steps in the town's wastewater management plan. The town filed the notices on December 6 with the State Department of Environmental Protection. The filing of the notices prevents commencement of the five-year time period in which Title V system upgrades would otherwise be required to be done by residents and suspends any Title V new construction requirements. It's a formal process in which we have to indicate to the DEP that we're filing for the permits in areas such as Yarmouth, which have been designated as nitrogen-sensitive areas, said Jeffrey Colby, who is the director of the Town Public Works Department. It was required to file those permits in order to have residents be able to avoid putting in expensive, innovative, and alternative septic systems. The notice of intent simply stated that the town will be filing the watershed permits at some point in the future, Colby said. Previously, a notice of intent was filed for the Bass River watershed. Under new regulations announced earlier this year, communities in a nitrogen-polluted watershed have two years to get a watershed-wide permit that outlines a plan for reducing their pollution. If a watershed district does not obtain a permit, the owners of septic systems there will have to replace or upgrade their systems within five years. Effective July 7th, the new regulations are part of the state's Title V environmental law regulating on-site septic systems and declare most of the Cape Cod Peninsula's 30 watersheds as nitrogen-sensitive areas. In Lewis Bay, Parker's River, and Bass River watersheds in Yarmouth, there are approximately 12,500 properties that need to be fixed to meet the nitrogen removal requirements. A watershed permit is a 20-year permit for communities to design and implement wastewater solutions as per their needs. The State Environmental Protection Agency recognizes long-term wastewater plans as the most efficient and effective way to address the Cape's water quality problems, and many towns have already started working on plans that include nitrogen-reducing nitrogen solutions. Towns have two years to opt into a watershed permitting process, a process which Yarmouth already started. The next steps in the watershed permitting process is for Yarmouth to obtain a groundwater discharge permit approval by January 30th, 
for the 99 Buck Island Road recharge site and awarding Phase 1 wastewater program construction contracts by October 31, 2024, said Colby. An evaluation of potential modifications to the proposed eight-phase wastewater program as approved in the town's comprehensive wastewater management plan would potentially begin in July and be completed by July 2025. This headline, Family Continues to Fight for 5.7 Acres. A 5.7-acre land parcel in Aquina continues to hang in the balance as oral arguments begin in the Massachusetts Appeals Court. For Hillary Swindle, one of 19 defendants in the Vineyard Conservation Society v. Tanya Devine case, the continued fight against Vineyard Conservation for Lot 240 isn't just about the land, it's also about her family's cultural ties to the area as Wampanoag tribal members. We have been fighting to strengthen our ancestral bounds from generation to generation, said Swindle. Much of our land has been taken and lost, and in our case, misconstrued. The court case involves a dispute between members of the Divine Family and the Vineyard Conservation Society over land in Aquina, formerly Gay Head, also known as Lot 240. Both parties claim the land belongs to them, and deeds remain at the center of the dispute. Court deliberations stretched back to May 2017, when a complaint was filed by Vineyard Conservation to decipher who Lot 240 was deeded to in 1870. Tanisha Gomes, a defendant in the case, told the Times on Thursday that the deed that includes Lot 240 was fraudulent and was legally passed to the defendants through their ancestor, Louisa Pocknett Devine. The land in question, she said, is currently listed on the Town of Aquinas Board of Assessors website under Louisa Devine. Vineyard Conservation bases its claim of ownership on 1944 and 45 deeds, which they say assert that Horace Devine, Louisa Pocknett Devine's grandson, gave Henry Kronig, a real estate mogul in the mid-1900s, the entirety of his family's land, including Lot 240. Kronig died in 1970. On October 24, 2022, Superior Court Judge Janet Sanders ruled the land belongs to the Vineyard Conservation Society after five years of litigation. The Divine Family appealed the ruling. During a December 5th hearing before the State Appeals Court, Associate Justice Kenneth Desmond Jr. peppered Jonathan Poloni, an attorney for the defendants, with questions about the language of the deed. According to Vineyard Conservation, Horace states that he's giving all my land in Gay Head, now Aquina, including Lot 240, to Kronig. Even if they had not known they owned it, they can still give it away if they owned it, Desmond asked. Doesn't any and all mean any and all? Lot 240 isn't specifically named on any of the deeds associated with the transaction between Horace and Kronig, Poloni told the court, which is why it's unclear that Horace gave Lot 240 away. And that's what's unique about the case, he said. Appellate Judge Suk Young Shin also questioned the language of the deed and asked why it wasn't plausible that Horace decided that he didn't want to own any land. Horace could have said, I don't want it, therefore I convey every and all pieces of land that I own, she said. For Poloni, it's difficult to get around the deed interpretation, 
which requires the grantor of the deed's intent beyond the plain language of what the grantor said on the deed. The intended circumstances apply, said Poloni, who based his argument on a handful of land cases pinned on language interpretation and the circumstances of particular times in history. During his argument, Poloni said there's evidence Horace thought someone else owned Lot 240 at the time he transferred his property rights and interest to Kronig. It, Lot 40, was in a deed to somebody else, said Poloni. In 1945, the Cape Cod Company had a deed from a Ralph Hornblower that contained Lot 240 in a specific description. Attorney John Willis, representing Vineyard Conservation, said Horace's statement, All My Land in Gay Head, is clear. There is clear control and precedent, said Willis. Every time this language comes up, the court has enforced it and said that it means what it says. It means all my land in the geographic district. Gomes, who was present in court during both arguments, said that Horace's language wasn't only ambiguous, the deed which was transferred to Kronig also didn't contain Horace's signature. The deed is in fact ambiguous when it is written in a deed which is a binding document, said Gomes, that by nature should explicitly disclose the property description, which in this case it does not. Troy Small, a defendant in the case, thinks the town of Aquinnah is also somewhat complicit in taking land from indigenous people. This stems from the corruption of the town of Aquinnah, the government, and the disenfranchisement of the Native American people, Small said. This case needs to be reviewed on a much deeper level. Vineyard Conservation didn't recall return calls from the Times for comment. So it could be months before the appeals court hands down a decision, said Poloni. If they don't go with the defendants, then they are ultimately saying that the evidence that wasn't included in the general deed doesn't matter, he said. If the judges side with the plaintiffs, said Poloni, the case could be presented to the Supreme Judicial Court. We can file a request up to the highest court and say we think this is an important issue, but there's no guarantee of a further hearing, he said. Ultimately, Poloni said, the case presents interesting questions surrounding property titles and how the titles involved in the case can be recognized. If the appellate court sides with the defendants, there will be an opportunity to resolve who the actual heirs are to Lot 240. There are many people that could claim an interest in this piece of land, he said. Marlene Devine, another defendant in the case, said the appellate court judges didn't seem to grasp the fact that deeds have standards. The deed in question, she said, does not meet Massachusetts standards to properly transfer land to another party. The Kroenig family, over time, she said, has already been involved in numerous land court cases. We hope that the appeals court judges will ask for assistance from land court before they make their decision, she said. And here's a column this uh, written by Cape Cod Times photographer Steve Heaslip in his weekly column, and it's titled, The Last Leaves of Autumn Stand Defiant. The last leaf stands defiant in the north winds, tenacious and stubborn in a driving rain. It is the final member of its clan on the old maple in the front yard still holding out. Naturalist John Muir pondered, I wonder if leaves feel lonely when they see their neighbors falling. 
Sleigh bells may be ringing in the retail stores, but the sounds of the season in my neighborhood are leaf blowers. The great gathering is underway in yards large and small across the Cape. Rakes, blowers, barrels, and tarps are called into action to harvest up this year's crop of leaves. There are as many leaf-raking strategies as there are homeowners. Start slow and steady in October, or wait until the new year arrives in a January chill, making one big push. I approach the task as a marathon with an occasional sis for Mother Nature. The yellow maple begins to shed her plumage in mid-October. This is casual raking, once a week or even just a lawn mowing to mulch them into the soil. The pace picks up around Halloween and I move into the zone system, dividing the front lawn into four sections and taking on one each day after work when the return to standard time gives an hour of working daylight. Depending on temperature and prevailing winds, this tactic works well into November. The wind direction can assist or harm as it sends the leaves whirling around the neighborhood. Now is the heartbreak hill part of the race, all uphill, forcing extra effort and time to clear off large piles. As a long-time use-only-a-rake purist, I have succumbed to using an electric blower. At this stage of life, it saves the aging photojournalist's shoulders and speeds up the collection. By the arrival of Black Friday, the maple leaf collection is finished, except for a cleaning out of the flower beds. But oak leaves don't give in, cemented on their lofty perch. The holiday shopping countdown is well along into December, and they remain steadfast and unyielding until a deep freeze arrives in early winter. But they are photo-worthy, glowing in the sun of the year's shortest days. So, down with the rake, up with the camera, to pay my respects to the last leaves, and in the serendipity of the season, the blue bird of happiness shows up for a portrait. And that was a weekly photography column written by Steve Heeslip, who is the Times' chief photographer. In this headline, USC's large spike in homelessness. Tens of thousands more people in the U.S. were homeless in 2023 compared with last year, as high costs of living pushed some of the most vulnerable Americans into shelters and the streets. Homelessness shot up by more than 12% this year, reaching over 653,000 people. The numbers represent the sharpest increase in largest unhoused population since the federal government began tallying totals in 2007. Last year, federal data showed 582,000 people experiencing homelessness. The federal government calculates the number each year based on counts from local officials on a single night in January. The population of people experiencing unsheltered homelessness who are particularly at risk of violence and criminalization increased as well as the number of people living in shelters. The data comes months after the federal government found the U.S. is facing growing rates of poverty and food insecurity. In 2022, the most recent year for which data is available, more than 12% of the nation was living below the poverty line, and nearly 13% said they didn't have enough to eat. The U.S. saw such a sharp increase this year because more people are becoming unhoused faster. That's according to Ann Oliver, who's CEO of the National Alliance to End Homeless. More people are also becoming homeless for the first time, she said. 
they move from a housed situation to an unhoused situation, and that's happening more quickly, and it's more direct. More folks are reporting as they're showing up in the homeless services system that they're coming directly from a lease. Unlike in years past, the spike in U.S. homelessness was driven by increases among all population and demographics, HUD said Friday, including unhoused families with children and unhoused veterans. It's alarming, Oliver said. The nation's unhoused population increased so sharply because people are becoming unhoused at a greater rate than people exit homelessness, HUD officials said Friday. In recent years, homeless services providers have been particularly strained because more people need help, and at the same time it's been harder to get people housed because housing costs have increased. The cost of rent is outpacing our ability to get folks housed, said Oliver. High housing costs continue to be a financial stressor for the poorest Americans. In recent years, more people in the U.S. are rent burdened, according to HUD, meaning they spend more than 30% or even over 50% of their income on rent. In 2021 and 22, as millions of Americans struggled with high rents, increasing grocery bills and other essential expenses, pandemic-era government financial assistance waned or ended, Oliver said. There's a pipeline of people who are deeply at risk. In a statement Friday, U.S. Interagency Council on Homeless Executive Director Jeff Olivette said pandemic-era protections prevented even more people from falling into homelessness in 21 and 22. In contrast to recent years, this year saw increases among homeless people with children, veterans, and unaccompanied young people, HUD officials said. Veteran homelessness, which had historically seen some of the steepest declines in the U.S., increased by more than 7%. From 2020 to 2022, veteran homelessness dropped more by more than 11%. Across the country, elected officials and nonprofits in some cities have reduced homelessness by working with landlords and helping people remain in the streets. For instance, Houston saw a 17% drop in street homelessness after more than 4,500 residents were moved from the street to housing or prevented from becoming homeless, the mayor's office said. In Philadelphia, the city's eviction diversion program helped a majority of participating landlords and tenants avoid evictions by mediating any landlord-tenant disputes without taking cases to court. Local providers put in the hard work and saw positive results, Oliver said, and their housing market is not quite as tight as what you see on the coast in some other big cities, she said. And here is Today in History. Today is Monday, December 18th, the 352nd day of 2023. There are 13 days left in the year. On this state in 1865, the Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution, abolishing slavery, was declared in effect by Secretary of State William H. Seward. In 1892, Peter Tchaikovsky's ballet, The Nutcracker, publicly premiered in St. Petersburg, Russia. Although now considered a classic, it received a generally negative reception from critics. In 1917, Congress passed the Eighteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors, and sent it to the states for ratification. 
In 1940, Adolf Hitler signed a secret directive ordering preparations for a Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. The invasion, known as Operation Barbarossa, was launched in June 1941. In 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the government's wartime detention of people of Japanese descent from the West Coast, while at the same time ruling that conceitedly loyal Americans of Japanese ancestry could not continue to be detained. In 1957, the shipping port atomic power station in Pennsylvania, the first nuclear facility to generate electricity in the United States, went online. It was taken out of service in 1982. In 1958, the world's first communication satellite, SCORE, standing for Signal Communication by Orbiting Relay Equipment, it was nicknamed Chatterbox and it was launched by the U.S. aboard an Atlas rocket. In 1969, Britain's House of Lords joined the House of Commons in making permanent a 1965 ban on the death penalty for murder. In 1992, Kim Yong sam was elected South Korea's first civilian president in three decades. In 2003, two federal appeals courts ruled the U.S. military could not indefinitely hold prisoners without access to lawyers or American courts. In 2011, the last convoy of heavily armored U.S. troops left Iraq, crossing into Kuwait in darkness, in the final moments of a nine-year war. In 2012, Texas A&M quarterback Johnny Manziel became the first freshman to be voted the AP Player of the Year in college football. And on this date in 2019, the U.S. House impeached President Donald Trump on two charges, sending his case to the Senate for trial. The articles of impeachment accused him of abusing the power of the presidency to investigate rival Joe Biden ahead of the 2020 election and then obstructing Congress's investigation. It was the first of two Trump impeachment trials that would end in acquittal by the Senate. So we've reached the halfway point of our broadcast and at this time we read today's obituaries. Lorraine Esther Jacobs, 94, from Sandwich, passed away on December 14th, surrounded by her children and cherished family members. She was the wife of the late Alan R. Jacobs Sr., who passed away in 1996. She grew up in Somerville, where she met a sailor named Alan, and they married in June of 1948. They moved to Alt Malden, where they raised their five children. They owned the Country Basket and Deli and Catering Service in Stoneham from 1972 to 75, and they moved into the family home in Sandwich, in 1988. Lorraine retired from CVS in 1997. Her vibrant spirit has left a lasting impact on all her newer. She was a faithful member of Corpus Christi Church in Sandwich. She found solace living by the ocean and relishing the beauty of the sea. She eagerly anticipated Wednesday nights for bingo, where she enjoyed the company of her cherished bingo girls and her favorite call of N42. She was a member of the American Legion Post 188. Lorraine volunteered for the Sandwich voting polls for 25 years, and her commitment to community extended to her graduation from the Sandwich Citizens Police Academy and the Sandwich Citizens Fire Academy. 
She was a compassionate soul and faithfully contributed to causes she held dear, including St. Jude's Children's Hospital, local law enforcement, and veterans' charities. Known for her enjoyment of gaming, Lorraine reveled in visits to Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun, where she found joy in the slots. Her loyalty to the New England sports teams, particularly the Patriots and Red Sox, was unwavering. She proudly displayed her allegiance with a tattoo charm anklet representing the Patriots, Red Sox, Bruins, and Celtics. In death, Lorraine is reunited with her beloved Beagle Nikki and her cherished cat Mr. Bungie, both immortalized with portraits tattooed on her leg at the age of 82. She dedicated herself to caring for her family, creating precious moments with them that will be treasured forever. She leaves her children, Alan R. Jacobs, Jr. of Quincy, Linda Headley and her husband John of Auburn, Teresa Adams and her husband Stuart of Sandwich, Thomas Jacobs Sr. and his wife Bonnie of Sandwich, and Diane Leonard and her husband David of Pelham, New Hampshire. She also leaves 13 grandchildren and 14 great-grandchildren. Visitation will be held 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Thursday, December 21st at the Nickerson-Born Funeral Home, 154 Route 6A in Sandwich. Private burial will be held at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. Richard A. Quirk, age 73, of West Yarmouth and Englewood, Florida, passed away suddenly on Tuesday, December 12th at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Burlington. He was born in Northampton, the son of the late Joseph and Margaret Quirk. Richard was an employee of National Cash Register, NCR, for many years, and later retired from W.R. Grayson Company of Cambridge. He was the loving husband of Eileen Quirk for 39 years. He is survived by his sister, Helen Vassallo of Amherst. His funeral mass will be celebrated at St. Joseph's Church on Albion Street in Wakefield on Tuesday, December 19th at 10 a.m. Visitation for relatives and friends will be held at the McDonald Funeral Home on Yale Ave in Wakefield on Monday, December 18th from 4 to 7 p.m. Burial will be at a later date. Robert W. Fraser, 65, of Marston's Mills, passed away on December 12th. He was the son of the late Robert Fraser and Claire Fraser. Rob went to school in Saugus but spent every summer with his family in West Hyannisport, where he grew to love the Cape. Rob, uh, Rob graduated from Merrimack College in 1980 and worked in and around Boston for several years before returning to the Cape full-time. He retired from Fowler & Sons Pest Control in 2020. Those who knew Bob will remember him as a kind and generous man who liked nothing more than spending time on the water in the company of, of his beloved dogs. He is survived by his sister, Claire Fraser, and her husband, Jack Cammer, of Highland, Maryland. At Rob's request, there will be no funeral service. Back to the news in this story, experts share red flags of building damage. On December 11th in New York, New York City, a seven-story tenement building partially collapsed, heaping a 12-foot mound of debris on the street and forcing over 170 people, including dozens of children, from their home. The dangerous incident followed complaints to authorities and a subsequent inspection. Experts say people living in older buildings across the country can learn from the circumstances surrounding the unexpected collapse. 
While the only way to be certain of a building's structural integrity is to have it professionally evaluated, there are some red flags people can watch out for. Abi Agaher, a civil engineering professor at Drexel University who has studied structural failures for decades, said, Telltale signs of degradation include water intrusion, sagging ceilings, and cracks that seem to be expanding in walls. Residents should report all of these issues to the building owner, their landlords, or the city they live in. Structural warnings most often appear in the form of changes, windows that no longer open, doors that are sticking, strange sounds, growing or moving cracks. A good way to tell if a crack is expanding is to fill it in with spackle. If it opens up again, that could be a sign of trouble. People who are worried about their building should get a long level and see if their floors are drooping over time. As America's housing stock ages, experts have advocated for greater oversight to prevent collapses. In New York City, which has had two prominent building collapses this year, the median residential building is almost 90 years old. New York City Mayor Eric Adams acknowledges the age of tenements throughout the city at a news conference. Many of our buildings come from an older stock, he said. You have this from time to time. At the same conference, Deputy Mayor for Operations Mira Joshi said the city's buildings department doesn't employ enough staff to inspect all buildings citywide and that they're looking to sharpen tools, such as escalating fines to ensure landlords keep up with inspections and repairs. And the daytime te television Emmys were presented Friday night. General Hospital won six trophies, including four for acting, at the Daytime Emmy Awards. The late Sonia Eddy won for her 16-year role as no-nonsense head nurse Epiphany Johnson on the venerable ABC show. She died last December at age, 50, December at age 55 from an infection after surgery. Allie Mills, best known for her role as the mother on The Wonder Years, won for guest performance on a daytime drama. The 72-year-old actor became began playing Heather Weber on General Hospital when the role was recast last year, and General Hospital also won for its directing team. Susan Lucci received the Lifetime Achievement Honor for her 40-year run as Erica Kane on All My Children. The actor, who turned 77 this week, was nominated 18 times in the Lead Actress category without winning before she ended the futility in 1999. And Matthew Perry died from the acute effects of the anesthetic ketamine, according to the results of an autopsy on the 54-year-old Friends actor released Friday. The L.A. County Department of Medical Examiner said in the autopsy report that Perry also drowned in the heated end of his pool, but that it was a secondary factor in the October 28th death deemed an accident. People close to Perry told investigators that he was undergoing ketamine infusion therapy, an experimental treatment used to treat depression and anxiety. But the medical examiner said the levels of ketamine in Perry's body were in the range used for general anesthesia during surgery, and that his last treatment, 11, uh, I'm sorry, this is a typo, two weeks earlier, wouldn't explain those levels. The drug is typically metabolized in a matter of hours. The report says coronary artery, the report says coronary artery disease and buprenorphine, which is used to treat opioid use disorder, also contributed to his death. <laughs>
And this headline, Pharmacy Privacy Practice, Practices Under Fire. Prescription records of thousands of Americans were obtained from pharmacy chains by law enforcement agencies without a warrant, according to a congressional inquiry, and lawmakers are pushing for stricter oversight. The inquiry by Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, the Senate Commerce Committee Chairman, and Representatives Pramila Jayapal of Washington and Sarah Jacobs of California, said Tuesday that three of the nation's eight major pharmacy change chains do not require staff members to contact a lawyer before releasing the information to law enforcement. The three chains were CVS Health, Kroger, and Rite Aid. The findings raise concerns from Democrats about how the pharmacies handle patient privacy as the fight over abortion access nationwide continues. 21 states ban abortion or restrict the procedure after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the federal right to abortion last year. In a letter to Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra on Tuesday, the lawmakers said they want the federal government to strengthen rules so pharmacies only release sensitive medical records to law enforcement with a warrant and a customer's knowledge. Through briefings with the major pharmacies, we learn that each year, law enforcement agencies secretly obtain the prescription records of thousands of Americans without a warrant, the lawmakers wrote. In many cases, pharmacies are handing over sensitive medical records without review by a legal professional. Although pharmacies are legally permitted to tell their customers about government demands for their data, most don't. Besides CVS Health, Kroger, and Rite Aid, the lawmakers also surveyed the practices of Walgreens, Boots Alliance, Cigna, OptumRx, Walmart Stores Incorporated, and Amazon Pharmacy. Among them, the lawmakers said Amazon Pharmacy was the only retailer that said it had a policy of notifying customers when law enforcement requested their records. The inquiry comes after 47 Democratic members of Congress wrote to Becerra in July urging expanded regulations under the federal law restricting the release of medical information. Those members of Congress want the law revised to require law enforcement agencies to seek warrants to gain access to someone's medical records and for that person to be notified when their records are legally requested. All of the pharmacies surveyed in the lawmakers' inquiry said they don't require a warrant signed by a judge before giving pharmacy records to law enforcement, say they are following privacy and federal health rules. The lawmakers noted in their letter that pharmacy records were provided in response to a mere subpoena. To justify this low standard of protection, several pharmacies cited language in HHS regulations that allow health care providers to disclose such records if it is required by law, pursuant to legal process, or pursuant to an administrative request, the lawmakers wrote. In a statement provided to USA Today on Wednesday, CVS Health spokeswoman Amy Tebolt said the company's patient privacy processes are consistent with the federal law restricting the release of medical information. She said, We have suggested a warrant or judge-issue subpoena requirement be considered, and we look forward to working cooperatively with Congress to strengthen patient privacy protection, she said. Most investigative requests from regulatory agencies and law enforcement requires us by law to keep the request confidential. If a request does not have a confidentiality directive, 
we consider on a case-by-case -case basis whether it's appropriate to notify the individual who is the subject of the request, Tebolt said. Walgreens spokesman Fraser Engerman said in an email statement that protection and privacy of its customers' personal data is a priority. We have a process in place to assess all law enforcement requests for records that is compliant with HIPAA and other applicable laws, Engerman said. We look forward to working with Congress to strengthen, strengthen these protections. Amazon spokeswoman Jasmine Gossett said in an email that Amazon Pharmacy has a policy of notifying customers when law enforcement requests their records. And here is today's Ask Carolyn column with the headline, Husband Calls a 12-Year-Old a Snitch for Exposing Affair with the Nanny. Dear Carolyn, my husband and I have been going through a rough patch for a while. I found out from our daughter, Erin, that he'd been cheating on me with the nanny, so I asked him to move out. We've been in counseling, and it took many months for him to stop blaming me. He kept saying it was my fault for emasculating him by working through the pandemic while he had his hours cut, and for basically not being a hot 22-year-old like our ex-nanny. He even made fun of how thin I'd gotten from stress over the affair. This year, he finally started owning his behavior and apologized for all he'd done, and we were going on dates and having fun together. Erin was so happy her dad was moving back in and said she was relieved he wouldn't be mad at her anymore. I kept assuring her that he'd never been mad at her, but she didn't seem to believe me. Finally, she confessed that during one of his early custody weekends, he called her a snitch and said the separation was all her fault. I'm heartbroken and torn between trying to work through this new revelation and calling it the last straw. Am I overreacting? Signed, Torn. Dear Torn, Wow. Is grievously underacting one of my options? First, if Aaron does not have a therapist, it's time. Second, I just want to wow again. Either I applaud that your husband started owning his behavior, thereby ignoring the scary abuse, or I point out the scary abuse, thereby undercutting the work people like me beg abusers to do. I don't like my options. So, I'll urge you most forcefully to seek individual counseling, because manipulating therapy is in the abuser playbook. And emasculating is one of the worst words in the language. It measures worth and masculinity, which scary earning wifey took away, boo-hoo, instead of just his humanity. The ideology is grotesque and reductionist for men and women alike. Dehumanizing or disempowering works fine to describe a blow that cuts into our self-worth without the gendered pigeonholing. If an, equi if an equitable term doesn't work for a given situation, then maybe the situation isn't equitable either and is due for a rethink. The hotline.org can get you started. Just to underscore the shift, you persuaded yourself this was just about a cheater, but now you know he's been abusive all along. And here is what to watch tonight on TV. The Price is Right at night at CBS at 8 p.m., Drew Carey hosts this one-hour primetime holiday edition of the beloved game show. On Fox at 8 p.m., Lego Masters, Celebrity Holiday Bricktacular. In this two-night special event concluding Tuesday, 
Guests Nene Leakes, Marshawn Lynch, Kelly Osborne, and Rob Riggle pair up with fan-favorite former Lego Masters, contestants David Guedes, Caleb Schilling, Crystal Starr, and Randall Wilson, to compete in ingenious holiday-themed challenges for charities of their choice. Will Arnett hosts. On NBC at 8 p.m., it's the live The Voice. The top five artists perform a ballad and an up-tempo song in front of the coaches to compete for the title. Viewers will have the chance to vote for their favorite artist overnight. Results and the winner will be announced on tomorrow evening's show. On TLC at 8 p.m., it's the season finale of 90 Day Fiancé the Other Way. In Tell All Part 3, host Sean Robinson sits down with the cast of The Other Way Season 5 for a deep dive into the most talked about moments from the season and updates on where all the relationships stand now. On NBC at 10 p.m., it's the Password Holiday Special. The latest version of the classic celebrity word game Password, hosted by Kiki Palmer and starring Jen, uh, Jimmy Fallon, returns with a special holiday-themed edition ahead of its upcoming second season. Here's some news in brief from around the nation and the world. North Korea fired a suspected long-range ballistic missile into the sea Monday in a resumption of its weapons testing activities, its neighbors said, as the North vows retaliatory steps against U.S. and South Korean moves to boost their nuclear deterrence plans. South Korea's military said in a statement that North Korea launched what appeared to be a long-range ballistic missile from its capital region Monday morning. Japan's defense ministry said it also spotted a ballistic missile launch by North Korea. A ministry statement said that the missile was still in flight and that it was expected to land in waters outside the Japanese exclusive economic zone. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told reporters that he had so far received no report of injuries or damages from the missile launch and that he planned to hold a National Security Council meeting to discuss the test. The launch came hours after South Korea reported North Korea conducted a short-range ballistic missile test into the sea Sunday night. It was the North's first weapons launch in about a month. And in Wilmington, Delaware, a car plowed into a parked SUV that was guarding President Joe Biden's motorcade Sunday night while the president was leaving a visit to his campaign headquarters. The president and First Lady Jill Biden were unharmed. While Biden was walking from the campaign office to his waiting armored SUV, a sedan hit a U.S. Secret Service vehicle that was being used to close off intersections near the headquarters for the president's departure. The sedan then tried to continue into a closed-off intersection before Secret Service personnel surrounded the vehicle with weapons drawn and instructed the driver to put his hands up. Biden was ushered into his waiting vehicle, where his wife was already seated, before being driven swiftly back to their home. His schedule was otherwise unaffected by the incident. The Secret Service did not immediately comment on the in incident. And biotech giant Illumina says it will undo its $7.1 billion purchase of the cancer screening company Grail after losing legal battles with antitrust enforcers in the U.S. and Europe. San Diego-based Illumina said in a Sunday statement that it made its decision to divest Grail 
after a U.S. appeals court ruled Friday that the merger could violate antitrust laws. The European Union in October ordered the deal to be unwound because it closed in 2021 without regulatory approval from the 27-nation bloc. The EU earlier slapped a $475 million fine on Illumina for jumping the gun on the acquisition without its consent. Illumina said Sunday it had already pledged to divest Grail if it was not successful with either the European Court of Justice or the Louisiana-based Fifth Court of Appeals, where the U.S. Federal Trade Commission case seeking to block the deal was most recently considered. Illumina is a major supplier of next-generation sequencing systems for genetic and genomic analysis. Grail, based in Menlo Park, California, is a health company developing blood tests to try to catch answer early. And in some entertainment news, Wonka debuted with a $39 million box office receipts in the U.S. and Canadian theaters over the weekend. That made it a strong start for the Timothy Chalamet starring Willy Wonka musical that underscored the young star's draw. Musicals have been tough sells in theaters in recent years, so much so that Warner Brothers downplayed the song and dance elements of Wonka in trailers. Instead, the studio emphasized Chalamet, the 27-year-old actor who, with Wonka, notched his second number one movie following 2021's Dune. The earlier film recorded a $41 million opening. While Dune was a sprawling and star-studded sci-fi adventure, Wonka relies chiefly on Chalamet's charisma. Wonka, which cost about $125 million to produce and played at over 4,000 locations, was also the first big Hollywood release to launch following the end of the SAG-AFTRA actor strike. Chalamet hosted Saturday Night Live just days after the strike ended. In his opening monologue, he sang to the tune of Pure Imagination about returning to this magical world where actors can promote their projects. It shows you the power of a star, and it also shows you the power of a star going out and working a movie, said Jeff Goldstein, who's the distribution chief for Warner Brothers. Having him out there after the strikes were over was a win for him and a win for the movies. Goldstein expects Wonka to be the go-to choice from families over the holidays. Its main competition for kids will be Universal Pictures' animated Migration. Now, Wonka is a prequel to 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, with Chalamet starring as a young Wonka trying to open a candy store. Its ensemble cast includes Hugh Grant, Olivia Coleman, and Keegan-Michael Key. Warner Brothers last revolved, uh, revived Roald Dahl's classic with the 2005 Tim Burton-directed Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, starring Johnny Depp. It debuted with $56 million, and it ultimately grossed $475 million worldwide. To reach those numbers, Wonka will need strong legs through the lucrative holiday movie-going period. On its side are mostly good reviews, 84% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and positive audience reaction and A- on CinemaScore. Chalamet is also drawing younger ticket buyers, Moviegoers under the age of 25 accounted for 36% of the audience, which was split evenly between males and females. Wonka added $53 million in overseas ticket sales. 
Chalamet is a true movie star who's been developing his craft and his reputation over many years, said Paul de Garabedian, senior media analyst for Comscore. Everybody's looking for who's the next big movie star. Is it all about the old school leading men? Chalamet is definitely that. For Warner Brothers, it's the first in a trio of high-profile holiday releases to be followed by Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom on Friday and another musical, The Color Purple, on December 25th. The only other new wide release was Christmas with the Chosen, Holy Night, from Christian-themed distributor Angel Studios. It debuted with $2.9 million in sales at 2,000 theaters. The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, again ranked second this week, with $5.8 million in its fifth week of release. The Lionsgate Hunger Games prequel, now up to about $145 million domestically and more than $300 million globally, has held strong week after week. Last week's top film, Hayao Mizaki's The Boy and the Heron, dipped to third with $5 million in its second week of release. The film from the 82-year-old Japanese anime master has already set records for him, the studio, and its North American distributor, G-Kids. And the Republican Party of Florida suspended Chairman Christian Ziegler and demanded his resignation during an emergency, emergency meeting Sunday, <clears throat> adding to calls by Governor Ron DeSantis and other top officials for him to step down as police investigate a rape accusation against him. Ziegler is accused of raping a woman with whom he and his wife, Moms for Liberty co-founder Bridget Ziegler, had a prior consensual sexual relationship, according to police records. Christian Ziegler, Ziegler has engaged in conduct that renders him unfit for the office, the party's motion to censure Ziegler said, according to a document posted on the social media platform X by Lee County GOP Chairman Michael Thomason. So that's all the time I have for today. This is your reader, Beth, saying thank you for listening and thank you again for your continued support of the Audible Local Ledger.